episode of the Women in Oxford's History podcast. I'm Bethany. And I'm Alice. And this month we'll be looking at the life of another woman who has contributed to Oxford's history. So this month we're joined by Deb Fisher, who's going to talk to us about the novelist Barbara Pym. Um, she's a graduate of St Hilda's College and is also the incoming chair of the Barbara Pym Society. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. So to start, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Barbara Pym's early life and kind of her childhood growing up and who her family were. Well, uh, her parents lived in Oswald Street where she was born. I think they were rather an eccentric couple. Her mother used to ride a motorbike. And um, after her mother's death, her father moved into the Wednesday Arms to live in, in the hotel. I think she had a fairly normal childhood. She had a younger sister, Hilary, who was two or three years younger than her. They went to school in Oswald Street. And then Barbara came up to Oxford in the early 1930s to St Hilda's to read English. Barbara almost immediately launched into various undergraduate romances. She sat in the Bodleian eyeing up various young men who came in and giving them imaginary names. The, the most notable of them was Lorenzo, who was a man called Henry Harvey. And she fell very much in love with him, eventually finding out his real name. And um, that, that was how their romance began in the Bodleian, by you know, deliberately passing his chair and things like that. She recorded all this in her diaries. She, her diaries have been published under the title uh, Very Private Eye, but of course that's the expurgated version. She recorded an awful lot of detail in her diaries, not just about men, but in later life. So how did these experiences in undergraduate shape her later writing? She started writing quite early. She had a group of friends at Oxford, including Lorenzo. One of them was Robert Liddell, who became a moderately well-known novelist. She began writing, later later in the 1930s, she began writing the novel called Some Tame Gazelle. It was about her and her friends and what they would be like as people in late middle age. So she imagined herself and her sister Hilary as two sisters who were living together, still spinsters, which in fact did come to pass. Then there's the, the archdeacon with whom one of the sisters has been in love as a student who's now married someone else, which is also what happened between her and Henry. Then the other characters all represent roughly people that she knew when she was young. It's been pointed out that by academics that that was a very unusual thing for a woman of that age, a woman in her 20s, to think of writing about older people and putting herself into that position which I think she does fairly convincingly. Do we know much about her life outside of writing? So kind of what else she was up to? She had quite a full life outside writing. She was in the Wrens, which obviously gave her an opportunity for a bit of travelling. She sort of brought that into the novel Excellent Women because one of the characters in, in that, the excellently named Rockingham Napier, is a former naval officer. And she implies that he's a rather um, a ladies' man who's enjoyed being surrounded by wrens when he was... Uh, so, uh, that you know, she may have had someone in mind. She eventually made a career for herself in the uh, African Institute in London, where she was one of the editors of their journal, Africa. 
that was the job she held for the longest. So again, uh, that's brought into her work a lot because a lot of her books have characters in them who are either anthropologists or librarians. She mocks them really in, in a kind way. But Barbara was a committed spinster in the sense that she, although she had relationships with various men and she was disappointed in love several times, she was contented to be a spinster and the characters in her books in many cases are spinsters who are happy with their lot. She doesn't write about people pining away with love for someone. She often has a character being disappointed in romance but not spending the rest of their life thinking about it. And sometimes they find someone else and sometimes they don't. Is that unusual for a woman writer of that kind of period to, to present spinsterhood in that way? I think so, although I don't think that they looked on it in the same way that we do. But I think that um, romantic novels would always end, obviously, with the man and the woman getting together. She seems to have had a very central relationship with her sister. Can yes. you talk a little bit about how they... Well, Hilary was still around when the Barbara Pym Society was formed in 1994, and she came to the meetings for a long time. She was very devoted to Barbara. They looked very alike and they spent a lot of time together. Uh, you know, aside from the fact that they lived together, they after they left London, they went to live in um, the village of Finstock, just outside Oxford. They uh, were devoted to uh, their local church. They went everywhere together, really. Hilary didn't come with her when she met Philip Larkin at the Randolph Hotel, which is a famous literary meeting. But uh, most of the time they were together. They, they arranged flowers in the church and they're buried together in the churchyard in Finstock. They were very, very close. And after Barbara died, Hilary uh, made it her business to ensure Barbara's legacy. So you already mentioned Philip Larkin. That kind of alludes to this period she had where she kind of struggled a little bit and, and didn't publish as much. Could you talk a bit about, about how all that happened? Yes, uh, her books had been published by various publishers, including Cape. Um, she'd never had any difficulty getting her novels accepted until the early 60s and things were changing a lot in the early 60s, particularly women's attitudes. Her style of writing or rather the sentiments behind the stories she was writing were maybe not quite what younger people wanted to read though her dedicated readers would have been happy to go on with more of the same. Um, so this book An Unsuitable Attachment was about a, a female librarian, a quite successful career woman who falls in love with and marries uh, one of her library assistants uh, but she was more or less told that nobody wanted to read that kind of thing anymore. So she made a, an attempt to bring her stories up to date, but it didn't really quite work out because she needed, to, I think, probably needed to have experienced those things before she could write about them. And she was still, in a way, living in um, the post-war world, especially after she moved to Finstock. It was, you know, much quieter and, and she wasn't really seeing the changes that were happening in places like London and, and even Oxford. Strangely, not long after this novel had been rejected, Philip Larkin, who was by then quite a successful and well-known poet, and he was a novelist as well, uh, wrote to her saying how much he enjoyed her books and did she have anything new coming out. It's always seemed to me to be a very odd combination, but... 
one doesn't imagine someone like Philip, the Philip Larkin we think we know uh, enjoying novels like those, but evidently he did. So she wrote and told him that her latest novel had been rejected and um, he asked if he could read it and maybe he could help her, you know, by having a word with his own publisher. And she sent it to him and he said he could, oh, he had enjoyed it very much, but he could kind of understand why it might have been rejected because of the times and uh, because it was in a way he didn't use the word formulaic but he sort of suggested that it was too much like all her other books and she went on trying and she went on writing she wrote more she produced more manuscripts some of them he he commented on but he was unsuccessful in getting her a, a publishing contract and it was only the Times Literary Supplement article that uh, brought her back into the public eye, which, which did have a lot to do with Philip Larkin, uh, because he was one of the two people who praised Barbara Pym's books. So that's why there was this 16-year gap between two of her novels yes. being published. And yes. then When a Quartet Norton was published in, was it, I think, 1977. Yes. Yeah. Um, it obviously then was reasonably well received because it was nominated for the Booker Prize. Yes, I think it probably helped that Philip Larkin was on the um, judging panel. It didn't win the prize, but um, it brought her back into the public eye very much. So, of course, she didn't have any trouble getting further novels published but unfortunately she was already ill she she had had a stroke earlier she'd had breast cancer and it had recurred the the novel that came out after that uh, sweet dove died is quite a different kind of book from quartet in autumn and and it again it it does reflect some of barbara's uh, real life because she had sort of fallen in love with a younger much younger man who was who was gay. She had a lot of gay friends. And um, in fact, she really, for her time, she was quite uh, progressive in including gay characters in her books, although it's always very understated. But the book is about an older woman who falls in love with a younger man. And in the end, she has to make do with his uncle. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not a romance in the normal sense of the word. So that's two elements of her books that we've talked mm. about as being quite progressive. This kind of more positive attitude to spinsterhood, as mm. someone call it, and also that she had a sort of more positive understanding of gay yes, men in yes, that period. Yes. Is, is that what draws you to her work? Is that why you like it? I would find it hard to say what really draws me to her work. It's, it's very funny in parts. All of the books have comedy in them. Some work better than others. And that is the aspect of it that probably most appeals to most people because um, in our conference every year we have um, dramatised readings from one of the novels and we are always the audience is always in hysterics. When you hear the words, the dialogue sort of leaps off the page. He is hilarious in parts. So what do you think Barbara Pym's legacy is? I think that the Pym Society is a great legacy for her to have because um, it not only gives people the opportunity to find out more about her and about her books, and it's a, a sort of central point for discussing her books, and a lot more academic work gets done, particularly in America. The Americans are mad about her. 
What, what is it about her that draws Americans in? Well, I, I, I think a lot of it is to do with Englishness and the quaintness of some of the situations. You know, the idea of people living in cottages and eating shepherd's pie and um, boiled baby and things like that. But a lot of it is that they appreciate her writing and they are always looking for original things that they can research on. So I like to think that um, through this society we're helping to make sure that people continue to read and appreciate their work. I was very pleased this morning to go into Blackwoods and find that they had all the novels on the shelf. Because in years gone by, we've gone in there and for quite a long time, quite a lot of books were out of print. And now they're all in print and they're all readily available. So to end, actually, really, if you kind of met somebody now, maybe a, a young woman who hadn't read Barbara Pym, what would you suggest that they start with? Uh, people often start with Excellent Women, which was one of her earliest successes I often liken it to Pride and Prejudice I think if you enjoy Pride and Prejudice you would enjoy this but in a completely different way so uh, that is the one I would usually recommend to people but if you want to to read about Oxford and get a taste of her life in Oxford Crampton Hodnett would be the one to start with and that is a very very fun book Fantastic, thank you so much for joining us Deb Pleasure Thank you for listening to Women in Oxford's History. Join us again next month when we'll explore the life of another woman in Oxford's past.